The National Portrait Gallery has many, many portraits of people who have contributed to the British way of life. And amongst their collections of kings and queens and engineers and politicians and prime ministers, there's a beautiful selection of comedians, British comedians who have influenced the British way of life, perhaps in their own way as much as George III did. The first of the really big post-war comedians was a, a guy from Birmingham called Sid Field, who people wouldn't remember these days, but he was an enormously uh, popular comedian and very influential as well. He, he first appeared in the West End in a show in 1943 at the Prince of Wales Theatre called Strike a New Note. And uh, two 17-year-old comics who were forming a double act used to watch him in the wings every night, and that was... Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise. And Sid Field was considered such a funny man that he, 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 he quickly made two films. He was going to go to Hollywood. Uh, but unfortunately, he, like a lot of comedians who, who did tour around the music halls and the variety theatres of the 30s and 40s, he had a big sort of drink problem. And uh, that sort of shortened his life. And he, he died in his early 50s. And now most people don't know who he is because he was around before television and uh, there's no radio. There's very little live examples of him at work. Sid Field, was the, Sid Field was a kind of comedian, there was a character comedian. He wasn't a stand-up comedian, he would play various uh, parts. He'd play a spiv uh, character, somebody with very wide lapels who could you know, get you anything on the black market. And then he played uh, also a, a photographer's assistant, a very sort of camp sort of face sort of character. And uh, such was the impact of him that uh, he, he became an overnight star having been tour in the provinces for about 20, 30 years beforehand, a long, long time before coming into the West End. But I've spoken to people who saw him live, and they talk about sort of, one man said to me, said that the, 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 the guy in the seat next to me in the stalls was, was rolling around the floor with laughter, just holding his sides. And certainly after the war, there was a huge demand for live entertainment. The variety theatres were still going at that point. And uh, if you look at the attendances of football matches and the attendances of live theatre, immediately after the the, the war, you'll find that they really hit a peak. By the beginning of the 1950s, uh, radio became a very important medium for the working comedian. Before that, most of them had been playing at sort of variety halls and the music halls, 30s and 40s. You'd be travelling around the circuit, you might be playing Glasgow or Shepherd's Bush Empire or somewhere in Birmingham. And in those days, particularly the sort of before radio really took hold, there was a, there was a north-south divide. There was such a thing as northern comics and southern comics. Uh, a southern comic like Max Miller, who's based in Brighton, he wouldn't go beyond Birmingham. Uh, he was once asked why he, he didn't go to Glasgow, and he said, I'm not a missionary. And uh, equally, Scottish comedians would find it very difficult to come down to London, so they, they, they generally didn't. So before radio came in, you, in, in terms of the comedian being able to work in that medium, people thought, well, they're not going to understand the accent. Tony Hancock in the 1950s, I suppose, was one of the comedians of the decade. Uh, his radio show, written by Ray Gorton and Alan Simpson, was, a, was a, an, in, an incredibly, uh, beautifully written, uh, constructed piece of work. Anthony Hancock, Anthony Aloysius Sinjin Hancock, as his fictional name gave him, was a sort of a man of the 50s. He had hope, he, he, he had desires, he, he had to deal with petrol rationing, he, he was sometimes very disappointed by, by the, the circumstances he found himself in. Sometimes he would boast of all kinds of family connections. He once claimed that his father was a duke, and he, in one of the lines he said, I, I could claim Argyleshire if I wanted to, and somebody said, why don't you? He says, well, there's nothing in Plymouth to interest me. 
And in the in the Hancock series, we see the sort of Kenneth Williams was in the show, Sidney James was in the show, Hattie Jakes was in the show. Half the people that went on to, to make the Carry On film started in the in the Hancock's half hour. And the other sort of show of the fifties that was really. Uh, uh, incredibly influential was The Goon Show, written primarily by Spike Milligan, starring himself, Harry Seacombe and Peter Sellers. And, and we see, if you look at The Goon Show, it's really sort of, every episode is really about surviving the Second World War. People get blown up the whole time, there's, there's terrible sort of explosions happening, and it, it's, it's, it's about comedy in a battlefield, uh, and uh, the noises, the strange sound effects you could suddenly have of a, a grand piano crossing the Atlantic at speed. And you just hear the sound of a piano being played very quickly. There's one joke I remember, um, one character's hiding inside a piano. He says, what are you doing that piano? He says, I'm hiding. He says, don't be ridiculous. Hiding's been dead for years. Tony, Tony Hancock, of course, had a very sad end to his life. He committed suicide in 1968, uh, long after he'd, he'd left Ray and Allen and gone to work with other people. And I think sometimes that does... It, influence the way that we look at him because we look at him through the sort of the filter of the sadness of, his, uh, of the end of his life and, and really we should think more about how he was when he was working how when he was popular and, and, and what great fun he was and, and, and what a joy he wasn't always a depressed man and it seems a shame that we sometimes feel as if that's the only way we can look at him a show called Beyond the Fringe, which opened in the early 1960s was an extremely influential show it starred Alan Bennett, Jonathan Miller Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. And those four people, first of all, the show was a massive hit in Edinburgh, and then it became a big hit on the West End stage. And then they went to America with it. But what also happened in the 1960s was television, the growth of television, meant that these people who had appeared on stage in a popular show could then build a television career. So what happened with the Beyond the Fringe people, particularly Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, became a template for all the other Oxbridge comedians that came after them. And this was a, a new breed of comedian. The people that we mentioned before generally had writers. They didn't write the material themselves. But this new breed of, of, of guys coming out of Oxbridge, very clever, very shrewd, very smart people, they moved from doing successful stage shows into writing for television shows and then doing their own television shows. They wouldn't have been in show business 20, 30 years beforehand because to be a working comedian, they meant travelling around the country, not a great deal of money. Suddenly television is there, you can go from being sort of like an unknown to being a television star quite quickly, the money's better, the work is better. If it wasn't for television, then John Cleese would probably have been a lawyer. Before Beyond the Fringe, there wasn't really what you would call uh, much satire around in, in, in terms of the stage or, or, or the broadcasting medium. In fact, Harold Macmillan, who was Prime Minister at the time, went to see Beyond the Fringe, and Peter Cook, it was considered rather scandalous at the time, did an impression of Harold Macmillan in the show. And to impersonate the current Prime Minister on stage was, was, was too much for some people. It seems very mild now, and actually... It was quite a gentle, uh, uh, affectionate send-up of him. It wasn't a particularly vicious uh, attack, but people at the time were rather surprised that people were allowed to get away with this sort of thing. Don't want to give the impression that the 1960s was just full of uh, comedians from Oxbridge. There were also people like Benny Hill who started in the late 50s and, and I suppose was one of the first comedians to grasp the concept of television and make television part of what he was doing. He would often do scenes where he'd play three or four characters in the same set and you'd see the three or four of them next to each other with the magic of television. And one particular sketch that he did that I, I really had a big influence on me was a, a, a sketch about a bad continuity man who couldn't get things right. So you had a situation where Benny Hill was talking to Patricia Hayes, the actress, in a sort of very in a room, just two of them in a, in a room, just talking to each other. He turns and looks in the mirror, and in the mirror there's a party in the room. 
and he turns around again and there's no party there. And that, when I saw that when I was six or seven, I, I, I thought that was a sort of magic. And I suppose it is. Frankie Howard was another comedian who was very big in, 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 throughout the 1960s. Um, there's various stories about writing for Frankie. He, he didn't write his own material, so some writers would put in the oohs and the ahs, and he'd say, what, what's all this oohs and ahs? I'll put them in myself, you don't have to put those in. And if you didn't put them in, he'd say, well, where's, where's the oohs and ahs? And it was, you know, could be quite difficult with writers, but I, I went to see him live uh, many, many years ago, and he had this marvellous act with this pianist who just looked at him, this female pianist looked at him, and he'd look at her and he'd say, it's chilly, isn't it, dear? Yes, yes, chilly, isn't it? Yes. And he'd look at the audience and say, chilly, I'm sweating like a pig. <laughs> and it just always made me laugh because she hadn't said anything. He just said, yes, it's chilly, isn't it? <laughs> and, and so um, that, again, is something that you... That was an act that he did for 30 or 40 years. You know, he revived it every 10, 12 years when people had forgotten it. And uh, he was rediscovered by another generation. There are some comedians who, who are just naturally funny in the way they look, the way they walk. Uh, and Tommy Cooper is one of those. Eric Morecambe and Spike Milligan used to sort of quote him as their, as their favourite comedian. And, and the, his physicality was so amusing and that uh, he could get a laugh, he'd sort of hit himself on the head with a, with a, with a rubber hammer or something and just do this little dazed kind of sort of like this. And it was just hilarious. Uh, he would, or he'd come on stage with a suitcase full of props. He'd open up the suitcase, he'd look through the props, he'd look up at the audience and say, this isn't my suitcase. What's, whose suitcase is this? And going to all this stuff and, and just, and sometimes the corniest jokes, but told so beautifully that you, you could forgive him anything. By the 1960s, what television had done really had sort of removed that divide between the idea of the northern comic and the southern comic, and basically everybody could understand each other. Morecambe and Wise in the 50s thought they were a northern act. They weren't sure they'd ever work in the south. By the end of the 60s, they'd been watched by 10 million people all over the country. We look at a programme like The Comedians, which featured these, the, the, these working class comics who played the sort of working men's clubs in the north and stuff, people like Bernard Manning and, and, and Frank Carson and George Roper and, and all these other northern comics who were, uh, ten years before that, they would have thought, we can't put this on television, nobody will understand it. But now, of course, everybody did get it uh, and it wasn't a problem being able to hear uh, a comic from the north. We, we, it, it became a normal thing. It seems extraordinary now, but when Billy Connolly uh, first played London in the early 70s, he was a big name in Scotland, and, and some people thought, well, you're never, it's never going to work in London because they're not going to understand you. In fact, he hired the London Palladium, I seem to recall, for a Sunday to sort of, you know, his big sort of entrance into London, and uh, it backfired a bit because everybody in the audience was a Scot because, it's, you know, we've come, you know, people who are living away, expats living away from Scotland came to see him. But it was considered then that he had to have a sort of particular campaign to break him into the South, so, because he was a big name in Scotland and yet nobody here knew him and it felt that he had to sort of come and actually sort of break London, you know, and it seems ludicrous now because a, a comedian can appear on television and be seen throughout the British Isles and it, there's no sort of problem with, I don't understand him, he's from Kilbride. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't come into it now. Sometimes, somewhere in the mid-80s, Rolling Stone magazine in America came up with this phrase that comedy was the new rock and roll. And what they meant by that was what was happening in America and then what was gradually happening here as well is that comedians, instead of just playing clubs or doing a tour of theatres, were playing big stadiums. So suddenly uh, Lee Evans or Eddie Izzard uh, could play Wembley Arena and, and have sort of 30,000 people there. And, you know, and you've got the big screen and, uh, uh, and uh, the people are watching you on that big screen because you're such a tiny figure. And so when you do a look like that, it's, it's there in a strange way, live television of, of what you're watching. And there is an extraordinary, it just shows the extraordinary um, 
um, desire for good comedy, for, for people to go into a sort of comedy environment, as we now in this credit crunch, as it's called, entertainment will be the last thing that people will give up because it's a way of getting out of the present circumstances. You know, you can be feeling pretty glum, low, but if it's 30,000 of you in an arena and you've come to see one man, the, the, the surge of joy and adrenaline and, and all those sort of from, you know, chemicals that are in the air when somebody walks on stage and you go whoosh it takes you into, into another place and, and that's something that's, that is news of comedy certainly you know if you were a, a big comic act 50 years ago yes you would play sort of the theatres but you wouldn't play one big gig where you know 30,000 people could see you that, that is very new we well, it's the 1990s, we, we see people, uh, Reeves and Mortimer, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer came along and they had a very surreal sort of uh, take on stuff, as indeed I did, as indeed Eddie Izzard did, and many other comics as well. And surrealism in comedy is something that predates the term surrealism. If you look back at the sort of turn of the century, there were musical comics then who were doing strange routines and were talking about sort of, there was one guy called Dan Leno, who was a very, very popular comedian. He talked about walking around all day as a floor walker. And he said, and I walked around so long that my feet wore out, I had to turn my ankles up at the top and, and fold them over. And he started talking all about this stuff and people would roar with laughter about this. And these were surrealistic images before the, 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 the term was actually coined. So comedy has always been about the surreal, you, you know, you can take two, put two opposing things that shouldn't be together, a squirrel and a cricket ball, and, and put the, a, a top hat and the cricket ball and then give it to the squirrel. And you can get these elements, Ross Noble does it today as well, where you just get disparate elements, a, a chair and a trombone, uh, a nun drinking a cup of coffee, <laughs> it's anything. I mean, obviously those aren't particularly surreal examples, you get them every time, every day in life, but uh, you know what I mean. One of the surreal ideas that I did in, in, a, in a television series, Paul Merton, the series, I called it at the time, simply because it, there, was a, there was a film called Batman the movie, <laughs> Paul Merton the series, as if it could be anything else but a television series. And we used to have a dolphin that come up into the news agent's kiosk. It would be a sort of, you know, half dolphin, dolphin from the waist up and, and man from the waist down, a kind of sort of mermaid in reverse, I suppose. And lots of people didn't get it. They couldn't, what's, what's the joke about the dolphin? So it's just a dolphin, just, just a dolphin. But what's the significance? And there's no, just a dolphin. And uh, they, they had difficulty with it. But I, lo I used to love it. Um, you know, dolphin to come up and buy a packet of cough sweets or something. <laughs> I mean, immediately that's an amusing. Why would a dolphin want a packet of cough sweets? But he did. And uh, we used it several times. And uh, I've, I've, still got the, I've still got the foam rubber head somewhere at home. When I first saw Alexi Sell perform, it was about 1981, and it was a, a little sort of London theatre, only about 200 people sitting in there, and he was just incredibly magnetic. He came out, this big man, wearing a tight suit, and just aggressive, uh, annoyed about everything, really angry stuff. And uh, so Alexi was, when the comedy store opened, there was a whole new opportunity for people, but he was such a big fantastic comedian that you've, you've, not, you've never seen anybody like this on television over here. The, the, the sheer aggression of what he was about. There was nothing light entertainment about him. You couldn't imagine him introducing a singer on a variety show or something like that. He was anarchic, he was aggressive. Uh, only on stage, of course, in, in, in real life, he, he's a pussycat. But he's one of the major comedians since the war in that his attitude to stand-up comedy changed the way people did stand-up comedy after him. You, you get a lot of the sort of attack in the clubs and stuff when you're playing the drunk audiences. You, you have to be aggressive. You have to punch home the gag, make sure they understand it because if they're a bit 
pissed they don't always get it and he cut all the way through that he didn't care he didn't seem to care whether the audience loved him or not he wasn't seeking their approval he was there to shout at them and rant and rave and and, and uh, get really angry about stuff and, and you see his style people are still doing his styles you know 25 years later I first met Julian Clary at, uh, we were both playing some gig in South East London, some dreary polytechnic I think, and uh, we were both sort of starting off, and even though you know, neither of us had any money in, for stage props or, 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 or special effects or anything like that, Julian still brought, he, he made his entrance carrying a box of confetti, I remember, throwing the confetti up in the air as he, as he came onto the theme from Gone With The Wind, playing on a rather dodgy tape recorder. And I admired that immensely because although the surroundings weren't in any way glamorous, they didn't make any difference to him. He was still prepared to sort of come on and, and make the glamorous entrance. And I, and I think there was a real sort of commitment that he showed. He also, he had a collection of very old jokes, uh, it has to be said, but his enthusiasm for them was marvellous. I, I remember doing a, a gig with him in Guildford, the University of Surrey, and he walked the whole length of his horns and he found somebody that was bald. Simply so he could say, oh, what a lovely man. He spent all afternoon combing his hair and he forgot to bring it with him. And I just admired the fact he took two minutes to find somebody bald just so he could do that joke. <laughs> I was doing a show with Julian Clare at the Hackney Empire in 1988 and that was uh, the beginning of Julian real rise to the top and there was another actor on the bill, Harry Enfield, who at that time was, was doing a new character called Loads of Money. Uh, which was basically just standing on stage waving £10 notes at the audience saying, oh, I've got loads of money. Um, and it was very successful straight away. It was clearly something that had hit on the, I think the word is zeitgeist. And uh, it was, I think, an idea initially of Paul Whitehouse, who at that point was, was Harry's uh, main writer rather than being a performer in, in his own right. Uh, and I think a couple of years later it would have been Paul Whitehouse doing the loads of money thing. Uh, Paul is an extraordinarily good actor. I, 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 really, are, I, I really am a, a big fan of his. He, he, through the stuff he's done in The Fast Show to the latest stuff he's now doing with Harry Enfield, he, he, he's got a gallery of characters that do not in any way resemble each other. There's the, the, the surgeon that's posh, the, the young kid that's you know, running loose around a council estate. He can play anything really. And I think that is a, he, he's an astonishingly uh, brilliant actor. In the late 80s, I went to a, a, a gay pub called the Vauxhall Tavern that specialised in talent nights. And there was this act called Lily Savage that was on stage and was absolutely hysterical and was introducing rather overweight men pretending to be Madonna. And was so funny, was just so sort of in command of the audience. I assumed that Lily Savage was, had been around for a long, long time. And when I was talking to uh, Paul O'Grady, of course, is Lily Savage afterwards, he was telling me that he'd only been doing it for about three weeks. And, and so I, I saw him very early on. And at that point, for many years, he never thought that Lily Savage would cross over into a mainstream media. He thought it was simply a thing that worked well in, in, in gay clubs, but was not the sort of thing that would appear on, on television. So when he went to the Edinburgh Festival, Paul, um, a few years later, he was amazed at how well he did, because he honestly thought it was a, a sort of in thing that he was doing, rather than a sort of immensely popular my favourite comedian, perhaps, of all the ones that I've mentioned, is a guy called Max Miller, who came to prominence in the 1930s. And what I like about him is that his style is still very fresh, but also very modern. You can see acts before him, and you can see that they're part of the Victorian, Edwardian type of music. It feels very old-fashioned and dated, but his stuff still works very well. As 
uh, one of his jokes, a big favourite of mine, I always like this joke, he said, um, he used to come on, he'd have a very sort of floral sort of suit, and a bit of a sort of wide boy and a hat and a sort of, you know, uh, hit with a ladies, a ladies man, that was the kind of image he put across, and he said, uh, I went home the other night, I said to the wife here, I says, I hear the milkman has made love to every woman in this street bar one, and she said, I bet that stuck up cow at number 54. 